Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your grace. Thank you that by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, you are saving. You are bringing glory to your name by taking enemies and making them your children. We stand amazed at your great grace that brings to life, that clothes us with power and leads us to heaven. And I ask now, Father, for your grace as we turn to your word. We need your grace. I need it to speak rightly. We all need it to hear well. Would you be glorified in the unfolding of your word? Open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your law. Incline our ears to your word, to your great promises. We pray in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Today is about grace. It's about the grace of God that has been shown to us in Christ. The word grace is everywhere, and rightly so, in the church and in Christianity and in the Bible. Ask a friend to list some attributes of God, and grace will surely show up quick on that list. Ask someone what the definition of grace is, and you might hear some of these sound bites. God's riches at Christ's expense, a wonderful little acronym of grace. Getting what you don't deserve, as opposed to mercy of not getting what you do. Unmerited favor, unmerited assistance, also wonderful definitions of grace. John 1.14 tells us that Jesus came full of grace and truth. Acts 6.8 describes Stephen as full of grace and power. Ephesians 2 tells us in verse 5 that by grace you have been saved. And again in verses 7 and 8 of that same chapter, that God desires to show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Paul uses the word grace over 80 times in his letters, including it in almost every one of his greetings and his sign-offs. And in Titus, where we'll be today and where I encourage you to go ahead and turn, it's no different. Uh, Titus chapter 1, verse 4, reads to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. And then to the other end of that letter, the very last verse, Titus 3.15, All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Our text today is Titus 2.11-14, really the centerpiece of this small letter from Paul to Titus. And it's my desire that you will be strengthened and encouraged by this passage as we see God's grace described here 
maybe in ways that you haven't considered before. And that regardless of where you are right now, that you will come away astounded by God's amazing grace on display in Jesus Christ. And so with that, would you stand as I read for us Titus 2, verses 11 to 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. You may be seated. This passage puts the richness of God's grace on display, I believe, in three different ways, like facets of a gemstone as you move it around in your hand under the light. And as we work through this passage, I want you to see that God's grace is a saving grace, God's grace is a sanctifying grace, and God's grace is a securing grace. And that will be our framework uh, for today. But since we have parachuted right into the middle of Titus, um, let's first catch up a little bit on background and setting and the context around these verses. So Titus had been a companion and co-worker with Paul in the gospel, uh, mentioned in Galatians chapter 2 uh, as accompanying Paul to the Jerusalem council, which is described in Acts 15. He's also mentioned and commended a number of times in 2 Corinthians as a faithful and careful brother and co-worker with Paul and instrumental in encouraging that Corinthian congregation. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 8.16, Paul thanks God for having, quote, put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care that Paul has for the church. And now, Titus is on Crete, uh, an island in the middle of the Mediterranean. And in the same way, we believe that, that Paul left Timothy in Ephesus to continue the work and strengthen the churches there, Paul and Titus worked together on Crete to preach the gospel to established churches, after which Paul left Titus on the island to continue the work. And so the book of the Bible that we call uh, Titus is a letter from Paul to Titus with instructions and encouragement. We don't have a date for this, but most likely this is written after the end of Acts, after Paul's two-year imprisonment, his first two-year imprisonment in Rome, probably written alongside 1 Timothy, but near the, uh, the end of Paul's ministry and life. And the presumption here is that Paul, after his first imprisonment, continued his missionary work in Macedonia and, obviously, Crete uh, during this time. And so 
Paul now is a free man, and he writes this letter and encourages at the end of it uh, Titus to come and join him in Nicopolis, uh, which is near Corinth, uh, at the end of that, that letter, chapter 3, verse 12. So that gives us the setting of, of where Titus is and how he relates with Paul. In terms of context, in chapter 1, verse 5, Paul reminds Titus why he left him on Crete, and that is to put what remained in order and to appoint elders in every town as he had directed him. In the rest of chapter 1, uh, Paul outlines the qualifications of the men that Titus was to identify and to appoint as these elders in verses 6 to 9, and then he pivots to describe the false teachers on Crete in verses 10 to 16 in really sharp terms. He summarizes them in verse 16 as those who profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. And so Paul is already giving us uh, an important clue as to what we will learn when we get to our passage of one who professes to know God but denies him by their works. He, he goes on to say they're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. In chapter 2 then, Paul calls Titus to teach what accords with sound doctrine. And he follows with specific instructions for uh, several groups of people, uh, for older men, older women, younger women, younger men like Titus, and for slaves. And what's happening here, Paul is laying out very precisely what he means Titus to teach and what these things are that accord with sound doctrine. Something to note here is that Paul is over and over again drawing clear lines of connection between belief and behavior, between doctrine and deeds that there ought not be any disconnect between the two. Let me show you three examples of that. Uh, chapter 2, verse 1, we've already mentioned it, that Paul is noting that these instructions are things that accord with sound doctrine. That is, they're properly aligned. They, they're in tune with, they complement the sound doctrine. Secondly, look at chapter 2, verse 5. Paul exhorts older women to teach younger women, quote, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, and note the purpose that the word of God may not be reviled. Now think with me more closely about Paul's stated objective in those instructions. Surely Paul knows that an orderly household benefits everyone and pleases the Lord. No argument there. That's a good thing. Surely Paul knows that a God-ordered household is glorifying to God as his people are obedient. No argument there. But neither of those things are Paul's stated objective in verse 5. His stated objective for these instructions is that the word of God would not be reviled. That is, that the onlooking world of Crete would not see, in this instance, younger women who profess to know the Lord, but deny him with their lives. And as a result, then the world would just scoff at the word of God and say, 
Yeah, just another set of platitudes that, that sound great and do nothing. Third, uh, verses 9 and 10 of Titus 2 connect the dots for us as well as Paul is giving instructions for Titus to give to slaves to be submissive to their own masters in everything, well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything, here it is, his reason, so that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Here again, Paul's target is not primarily just well-behaved slaves, but it is the reputation of the Word of God, here referred to as adorning the doctrine of God by a slave's life and behavior, drawing attention to and making the Word of God even more attractive. So this connection between belief and behavior, between doctrine and deeds, uh, will continue to be important in our text for today, which is where we've now arrived. We've run right up to the front door of Titus 2.11. And as we do, we immediately encounter that small but important word, for. In Greek, it's gar, uh, which is not just a nightmarish fish, but, uh, but is also a road sign that tells us that what we're about to read is the reason and the logic. It's the underpinning of what we have just read. And so it's like because. So what we're about to read is the reason why Paul is giving these instructions in verses 1 to 10. Think of it this way. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow, could just as easily be phrased, I can face tomorrow for he lives. It just it wouldn't sing as well, but you get the point of what for is doing there. So Paul has spent 10 verses giving specific instructions to a bunch of different ages and groups of folks, and now with his for, he's going to tell us the reason and logic behind the instructions. And it's all about God's amazing grace. Uh, God's grace that through Christ saves, equips, and keeps to the very end. And so we come uh, to the end of our discussion of context and our introduction, and now we'll start. <laughs> Verse 11, and our first main point, that God's grace is a saving grace. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Paul speaks of the appearing of God's grace. Uh, this is the first of three uses of that word right in close context here. We've seen it in 2.11 that the grace of God has appeared. Just two verses later, we've already read it, that we, are, we will be waiting for the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. And then if you look ahead to Titus 3, 4, it also speaks of the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior having appeared. Uh, so taken together, it's clear here that Paul is not simply talking about some amorphous and wonderful general grace of God when he talks about the grace of God has appeared, he's talking about the incarnation of God the Son. In his ministry, uh, earthly ministry, his first advent. I mentioned John 1.14 earlier, but turn there uh, with me. 
And we will look at just a bit more here. John 1, 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And we'll pass over the parenthetical of verse 15 and look at 16 and 17. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So here again, just reemphasizes the same thing. Grace and truth, grace upon grace, grace came from Jesus Christ. John is clear, and here in Titus 2, so is Paul, that in Christ, the grace of God appeared, became undeniably manifest. And this grace, this Christ, appeared with purpose, the first of which was to bring salvation to all people and other scriptures concur john three seventeen tells us that god sent his son into the world in order that the world might be saved through him first timothy 1 15 tells us that christ jesus came into the world to save sinners here paul says that the grace of god that is christ appeared bringing salvation to all people all now, what does all mean? I did painstaking research, and it turns out that all means all. <laughs> but all always has a context. And the context here, we just bounced through in Titus 2, 1 through 10. Paul has just given instructions to all kinds of people, to old men, to young men, to older women, to younger women, to slaves and to free. And Jesus appeared bringing salvation for all kinds of people without distinction. Salvation for older men. Salvation for younger men. Salvation for younger women. Salvation for older women. Salvation for slaves. No specific rank or status or merit is required to qualify one for salvation only a full trust in the finished work of the one who came bringing salvation. And what a sweet truth that is. Now before we move on, we should also note the phrase bringing salvation. It's actually an adjective that, that modifies grace. So you could, clumsily slow, so, but could rephrase it, the salvation bringing grace appeared. You see that? that the salvation bringing or the saving grace appeared. Um, and that helps us understand more of what's going on. The point here is that this grace of God is the subject. It's the actor of salvation. Simply put, salvation belongs to the Lord, Psalm 3.8. And that from him and through him and to him are all things, including salvation. Romans 11.36. And the great multitude of Revelation 7.10 declares salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So a couple takeaways before we, we move to our next point. If you're here 
and you are convinced that God could never save you, that you just can't measure up, that you've blown it too many times, you're right, but repent of that thinking that you have to earn his favor. And remember that salvation is of the Lord. Cry out to him to save you by his grace alone and in Christ alone. And if you're here feeling pretty great about yourself and that God must be really happy to have you on his team, um, repent of that as well. <laughs> that, that thinking that you have earned his favor. And remember that salvation is of the Lord. Okay. Let's move on. The good news is that God's grace is a saving grace, and that would be enough. That would be enough. But Paul is just getting warmed up. In verse 12, we see that God's grace is also a sanctifying grace. Titus 2.12, still connected to that, that initial clause, God's grace has appeared... Now, verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the, this present age. The operative word here is obviously training. Uh, perhaps it's, in, it's translated instructing or teaching in your Bible, maybe even leading. Uh, the word indicates an ongoing and regular transfer of information, counsel, or instruction. And an aspect of this word that's important to understand is that the content of this training or teaching or instruction would otherwise be unknown and completely foreign to you, to the student. Put another way, those without the training are simply lost and ill-equipped for the intended purposes. Here's an example, silly it might be. I just flew back from Puerto Rico after working there for a week. And up front, I assume, at the front of the Airbus 321 were people who were trained to fly that thing. Um, they, they seemed trained. We had a good outcome. But uh, without that training, uh, the outcome would have been entirely different. Uh, and uh, so I was thankful uh, to, to be in the hands of people who were trained, and we had a good outcome. Now that's a simple picture of training in the everyday world, but how much more important that we be trained in the things of the Lord and know that this is a promise that the Lord has given us in his grace through Christ. This is where passages like Proverbs 3, 5 to 7 will interact <clears throat> with our text. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. The point here is clear that your understanding, my understanding, cannot bear the weight of our life. Your wisdom, my wisdom, is not sufficient to help us turn from evil. It's only the wisdom from God that is sufficient to see you through. So, we not only require saving, we require training. And without the training grace, 
the sanctifying grace of the Lord, our lives would be as productive and as fruitful as me trying to fly the Airbus home from Puerto Rico. It would be a mess. So as to the subject matter of this training, Paul presents it in two ways. First, the negative prohibitions and then the positive affirmations. So he says to renounce on the negative side ungodliness and worldly passions and then on the positive to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. A simple way to see this is Paul's simply saying that the sanctifying grace of God trains us to say no to some things and yes to others. But note here that the no of the verb renouncing is not a polite southern no thank you ma'am. Uh, this, this is a hard no. It is an absolutely not. It is a disdaining, a repudiating, uh, a hating, a denying of those things that God's grace ter- turns us away from. So as we look At the training content, I want you to see how pieces on each side of the fence pair up by contrast, where a negative and a positive pair up by contrast. So first, Paul calls for the renunciation of ungodliness and for the living of godly lives. The picture in your head for this, uh, godly or ungodly, should be one of orientation or direction. Another word that I find useful here is to think of being Godward, like the needle of a compass. I want to be Godward and directed toward God. It should remind you as well, uh, again, of Proverbs 3, 5. Where are you leaning? Upon what are you resting? Um, That's the picture. And so I have for you a few diagnostic questions to chew on to help tease out the difference here and maybe for your own heart. First, when trouble comes, not just burnt toast trouble or a grouchy coworker, but real trouble, where's the first place you turn? Who's the, the first one you contact? What's your first instinct when trouble shows up? Is it to cry out to the Lord or is it to someone else? Or is it to clam up and grit your teeth and work your way through it? That will give you some indication of your Godwardness, your leaning, your direction. Second, when you're tempted, do you draw near to the throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need? Or do you just bite your lip and fight your way through it in your own strength? Third, when trouble comes, how would you picture the change in your relationship with the Father? Are you running to him like the prodigal son? Or are you running from him in bitterness and disappointment like his older brother? I encourage you to think on those things and ask the Lord, to grow you in the sanctifying grace that runs to the Father. 
in your time of need and in your time of temptation. <clears throat> the godly life that God's grace trains us toward is one where the Heavenly Father is our North Star, our closest ally, our refuge in the storm, the one from whom, toward whom, and with whom all of our life is oriented and aligned. So godliness indicates orientation, direction, alignment. What's your aim? Second, in this content of these contrasted pairs, the renunciation is of worldly passions versus the positive um, life that is self-controlled and upright. So while godliness speaks of orientation, this pair contrasts really the core force that's driving or governing your life. Put it another way, what's, what's under the hood? What's, what's your engine driving you? A helpful parallel comes to us from 1 Peter. And uh, turn with me there, just a handful of pages to the right. 1 Peter chapter 4. Verses 1 and 2. First <clears throat> Peter 4, starting in verse 1. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. Now we'll pause there. So Peter's talking, when he says this same way of thinking, our context there is 1 Peter 2 and 3. So make yourself a note for your afternoon study to go and see what kind of thinking is being described in 1 Peter 2 and 3. The shortcut of that is, that Jesus, as he was reviled, did not revile back. When he was uh, harmed or insulted, he did not threaten, but he kept his eyes focused on his Father who judges justly. That's the way of thinking being described here. So anyway, um, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, and now in verse 2, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So as Peter writes of arming ourselves with this way of thinking, so Paul describes God's grace in training us in this way of thinking, this way of governing our lives, not according to the godless passions of the world, but according to self-controlled and upright thinking. So the idea here of self-controlled and upright thinking is one of Propriety, sobriety, and care. What we might also call thoughtful and restrained. Not of our own will or strength, but trained to think God's thoughts after him. Again, some diagnostic questions for you to chew on. When you're in a conflict, are you more concerned about winning or about a just resolution do you see only your perspective or can you get another into another person's shoes or better yet are you seeking the Lord's counsel in how to think about and resolve uh, the conflict you're in second when you have extra time on your hands young mothers are excluded I know you have no extra time on your hands when you have extra time on your hands nothing else to do, nothing really to even to concentrate on you as you're doing something, where does your mind go? 
How is your mind governed in those times? Are you thinking primarily about self-serving thoughts? Or are, they think, are you thinking of others or of the Lord? Does your mind <clears throat> wander wildly and without purpose, sometimes to places it should not go? It might be a clue uh, towards the engine that's driving your mind at that moment. And third, for young men, and maybe it's for young women, I, I, I say maybe because I spend a lot more time talking with young men than young women. Um, this conversation, question, why do you want to marry her? Answer, she makes me feel so good. Hmm. Now that sounds innocent and sweet, but can you see that at the core of that is selfishness? Now, understand I'm not giving counsel to go find someone to marry who makes you feel really crummy. <laughs> but <clears throat> dating counsel is a different message, or one that Pastor Dan uh, delivered with great excellence and care in March of 2022, and I commend that to you. But let's get back on point. Paul's good news here is that the same grace that appeared bringing salvation is the grace that trains us, that instructs us, that leads us in these matters, that provides us all that we need for life and godliness, as we heard from Jeremy last week. This is the sanctifying grace of our Lord. An important note before we move on back to our Airbus. What would be the outcome if you learned everything you could know about how to fly a plane but never actually got in a cockpit? Tons of information, zero application. No practical difference from being the completely untrained. There's nothing happening. In the same way, our text makes clear that God's grace has come not merely to save and not merely to train, but to train us to do something. So while this passage doesn't actually have a single command in it directly, it's baked right into the description of the training. So brothers and sisters, rejoice in the grace of God that has appeared in Christ bringing salvation and which trains you to re renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Yes and amen. Praise God for his lavish grace. But do something. Use that training. Put it to work. Follow the Savior. Okay. <clears throat> so God's grace is a saving grace a sanctifying grace. And finally, God's grace is a securing grace. Paul continues to unfold the riches of this for us in verses 13 and 14. Let me read those again. <clears throat> Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. In verse 12, the fruit of our training is being worked out right now in the present age. And now verse 13 reminds us 
that we are also looking forward to a future age and Christ's return. We saw this earlier when we looked at the, the verb appeared, but just note in verse 11, Jesus comes having appeared as the grace of God. And in verse 13, his appearing will be the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In his incarnation, Jesus condescended to us with a humility beyond compare. <clears throat> he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. But when he returns, the Lord Jesus Christ will come with a glory that is beyond description. All who are his eagerly await that day. And those of my generation and the one before, I know you eagerly await it just a little bit more with every passing day. Paul ends this little section <clears throat> with a compact reminder of Jesus' work who gave himself to redeem and to purify, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. To redeem and to purify. So if you've been tracking with me in this text, you can see the comparison. Verse 11, bringing salvation. Verse 14, to redeem us. Verse 12, training us, verse 14, to purify for himself, to, to save and to train, to redeem and to purify. There's a lot in common there. To redeem was a simple marketplace term in the slave market for paying in full the price that was required to set a captive free, to make the slave, a free man or a free woman. These were men or women often enslaved simply because they could not pay a debt. That will sound eerily uh, familiar if you understand the gospel. Because outside of Christ, you owe a debt that you cannot pay in a thousand lifetimes. And Jesus comes having paid it all redeeming his own from all lawlessness. Redeem is a precious and sweet picture of the grace of God appearing and bringing salvation to all people. And to purify is a process, not a moment, as is training. It takes time. God's grace through life and through trials is a refining, purifying process. Burning off the dross of useless things and purifying the precious gift of faith that he's given you. However, verse 14 is far more than just a reiteration of verses 11 and 12. I want you to see here that God's grace is also a securing grace, that saving a people for our Savior is more than just a job. He's not merely just ch checking off, okay, Yep, 74 million to go. Just checking them off, moving people you know, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. That's great, and that's important. But our Savior is doing far more. He is doing far more than just a rescue mission to Jesus. Securing a people for himself is a personal. He's playing for keeps here. Let me read verse 14 again. 
who gave himself, himself for us, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Jesus gave himself, he is purifying a people for himself, a people for his own possession, a zealous people eager for good works done in his name and for his glory. The theme of people uh, for his own possession is probably best known from 1 Peter 2. But by the time Peter has penned those words, or Paul writes it here, it's been woven through the fabric of the scriptures for 1,500 years. You will need to go back to Exodus 19 and Deuteronomy 7 and Deuteronomy 14 and Deuteronomy 26 and Psalm 135 verse 4. Ezekiel 36 that Russ read for us earlier, and Malachi 3. The Lord is jealous to vindicate his own name through the keeping of his chosen people as a treasured possession. And it's no different here in the New Testament where this text and 1 Peter 2.9 describe the people of God as a people for his own possession. And what God possesses, brothers and sisters, is secure. A people secured by grace are freed up to be zealous for good works, to boldly walk in the good works prepared beforehand by the Lord. We heard last hour, if you were here, we're on a mission that cannot fail. If you are in Christ and you are in his will, you will not fail. So what rich truths we have in these four verses. That God's grace is a saving grace, bringing salvation to all people. His grace is a sanctifying grace, training us to live godly lives. His grace is a securing grace that Christ gave himself to redeem us and to purify us for himself. So what shall we say to these words? We should rejoice. We should rejoice in the God of our salvation. We should also know that these words are a balm in times of trouble. If you are the Lord's, if you're in Christ, he has saved you, he is growing you, and he will keep you to the very end. Come what may. He has not saved you only to leave you on your own to figure the rest of it out. Our Savior is closer than a brother and has given us his very word, which is sufficient for everything in life. Are you facing trouble, doubt, conflict, even persecution or pain? Take heart and comfort in the grace of God and trust in the Lord through your trouble. As Spurgeon once said, it is folly to think that the Lord provides grace for every trouble except for the one that you happen to be in today. <laughs> and if you're here, uh, and none of this registers for you, it just makes no sense. 
Uh, you know that you've never experienced God's grace. You know that your life is devoid of self-control, uprightness, godliness. This, this is just like a foreign language to you. Cry out to Jesus. Turn to him. Put your trust in the finished work of the Savior who came bringing salvation for all people. Trust in his finished work of his life, his death, his resurrection for your sins and ask the Father for mercy to save you. And if you have any questions, um, I would love to talk with you after the service as I know uh, any of the elders and probably most of the people around you would as well. God's grace is truly amazing, brothers and sisters. Saving, equipping, and keeping us to the very end. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for your grace on display in Christ. How he has brought salvation for all kinds of people everywhere. Thank you as well that your same grace that saves also sanctifies teaching us and guiding us in lives that are aimed toward you with minds that are governed by you, your word and your spirit. And thank you that you are purifying a people for your own possession, that we are yours by your rich and glorious grace. In Christ's name we pray, amen.